Welcome to the Under Grace Podcast. This podcast covers everything related to Jesus Christ, Yeshua, God, or Jehovah. God represents all things pure, holy, righteous, just, praiseworthy. The list goes on and on. Every human is a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the punishment for sins? An eternity apart from our Creator, hell. We are nothing without God, and He offered His very own Son as a sacrifice for our sins in place of what we deserve. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Aren't you glad that we are no longer under law? If I still was, I'd be in a completely different place than where I am now. Grace is undeserved, God-given help offered to us for our renewal or purification or forgiveness. Still with me here? Good. Thank you for your time. So sit back and enjoy God's grace. Have you ever had goals, ambitions, aspirations? These are very good to have in our lives. They're the drive that gets us away from a lifestyle of laziness, procrastination, apathy, and negligence. What happens once you get to that goal? How do you feel? Elated? Accomplished? Proud? These are only temporary feelings, however. Afterwards, you will begin feeling empty, low, hollow, and thirsty for more. Despite every goal you obtain in order to be fulfilled, accomplished, and content, you will never reach complete satisfaction. What, then, is the answer? How are we to obtain true satisfaction in our lives? Let us take a look at Chad Williams, a retired Navy SEAL. He describes the moment after completing BUDS training and finally becoming a SEAL. And that graduation day was the highlight. I'll never forget where I was at as I was walking out, looking up, thinking, Scott, we did this, his name written on the bill of my hat. Scott Halverston was Chad Williams' mentor. I've got my family, my friends there. And they're like, Chad, you did this. You made it. Getting the trident, the insignia, as I became a seal, pinning it on my chest. Not only was this one of the happiest moments of my life, but quickly and unfortunately, it became one of the lowest days of my life. And I didn't understand why. And things just went downhill from there. Everyone is acquainted with this in some way or another. This is the concept that you are not comfortable with where you are in life. You have ambitions or some objective in the future. You think that if you could just arrive there, if you can simply get that job or that higher income or own a car or get married and have kids or have that grass is greener on the other side mentality, then you will finally be happy. Then you gather up enough motivation and start working toward this goal. You really believe that if you can arrive at the finish line of this goal, you will be truly fulfilled and satisfied. A hunger grows in your gut that offers incentive and motivation. It gives you a method of purpose that will help you attain your target. So you make sacrifices. Instead of going out with your friends and having fun, you stay at home and study. Instead of celebrating with a pizza, you have a salad. Instead of spending your money on insignificant things, you invest. You practice a lifestyle of yield and self-control. You renounce your old habits and immediate satisfaction to instead enjoy your endowment into the future. Then you eventually get there. 
You have obtained your dream. You can finally savor and taste the sensation of your profit. And you're content and fulfilled exactly like you thought, right? However, is this how it actually happens? That elation is only temporary. What do you do now that you've reached this goal? Maybe this satisfaction didn't last only because you didn't go big enough. If I could just raise the bar a little higher, trek up the mountains a little bit further, then this will finally deliver true happiness for me. So, you raise that bar. You set that finish line a bit further. Then you arrive at this new mark, this higher mark. You breathe in the air of victory. You can finally be content and fulfilled just like you thought. But what actually happens? You are still hungry. Your lips are still parched all over again. It becomes a vicious cycle. The ultimate realization occurs when you arrive at a place where you can't persuade yourself to set another higher goal. You have been let down by every one of them so far. What's going to change with the next one? You've gotten to that peak, but then there's just another one in the distance. I've climbed Mount Elbert once with a buddy. This beast was 14,440 feet above sea level, the highest peak in Colorado and the second highest in the lower 48 states. When you reach the top, you are literally standing on the roof of Colorado. However, there are at least five false summits before we reach the top. My friend and I saw the first peak and thought, man, there it is. This wasn't that bad. But once we got to that summit, there was another one above it. Then, once we reached that one, there was another one and another one. We felt that we were getting nowhere and almost gave up. It was so dissatisfying and frustrating. Forbes magazine questioned a billionaire once. They asked him if he could go back into the past and give himself a recommendation, what would it be? He answered, I would say to myself, when you get to the top of that mountain, there's nothing up there. In his book entitled Happier, Tal Ben Shahir explained the concept called the arrival fallacy. This is the explanation that when a particular goal is reached, you'll finally be happy. The arrival fallacy is a fallacy or myth because although ultimate happiness is foreseen upon the attainment of a goal, actually landing there seldom causes the predicted happiness. When you finally land on the harbor of your goal, you've already been predicting to reach it, so it is already ingrained into your happiness. Furthermore, arrival often brings more effort and burden. It is uncommon that the attainment of a goal, except for maybe winning an award, offers pure gratification and happiness without additional concerns. For example, having a baby or getting a promotion at work or purchasing a house. You count on arriving at these goals. However, once you finally get there, other emotions spring up in addition to happiness. In reaching one goal, most of the time, only unveils another more demanding goal. There's always another hill to climb. The realization, therefore, should be to find happiness in the atmosphere of growth, or in the continuous momentum towards a goal, while in the present, not an eventual happiness in the future. The unconventional name for the dynamic cause of happiness in the present is the pre-goal attainment positive effect. Remember, the goal is still essential, as is the means toward the goal. 
In her book, The Happiness Project, Gretchen Rubin explains that when she puts the spotlight on expecting future happiness of getting to a goal, she has to remember to enjoy now. If we can appreciate the now, we don't have to trust and rely on the possible future happiness waiting for us. We don't have to wait for the future part, but relish in now. If you work towards something that is unexciting and tedious, you probably won't have the satisfaction upon success and failure is especially unpleasant. However, doing what you love is in itself the reward. Here's a quote. The end of a melody is not its goal, but nonetheless, if the melody had not reached its end, it would not have reached its goal either. A parable by Frederick Nietzsche. Let's go back to Chad Williams' SEAL graduation. He had finally reached the summit and became a Navy SEAL. This was the absolute pinnacle of the mountain. If this wasn't it, there wasn't any other peak or anything that could beat this. If this didn't make him happy, nothing else would. Chad goes on to mention, So that graduation day was not only one of the happiest moments of my life, it was also really the fulfillment of those words, one of the loneliest things a man can experience is when he achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, but in the end, it lets him down. I felt like I was better off not being a SEAL and looking forward to becoming a Navy SEAL, because then, at least, I had something in front of me to give me drive and invest into. But now that I'd arrived, I finally realized I'm still just the same person. That's really the fulfillment of those words. So, where do you go once you reach the top? Here you are with this achievement, with this badge of honor. You don't want anyone to know that you're really not fulfilled and content. Your friends and family are all patting you on the back that you did it. You're on top of the world. You're living the dream. You're a rock star. But in reality, deep inside, you feel more empty at this stage than ever before. You have given everything to get to this point. It might have been your childhood dream. You felt that everything would come together once you arrived at your destination. However, nothing changed. You were still the same person. This is what Chad felt like after becoming a SEAL. After Bud's training, Chad was placed on SDV-1, SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1. Team 1 had recently returned from deployment, so the entire team was given some leave. Chad returned to his hometown of Huntington, California. He began hanging out with his old friends who saw him as a hero, like he was this warrior who had returned from an epic battle. They went out drinking a lot and partied it up. This was where everything started going downhill. What gave Chad purpose at this point was drinking, and drinking a lot. The whole time, his parents had been inviting him to church and praying for him. However, he saw church as something he had done as a kid. It was fine if his parents went, but it wasn't for him anymore. However, his parents still prayed for him. One day, he just figured he'd go to church with them and satisfy them. However, his motives were not sincere. He figured that if he could just check off the box with the whole church thing, his parents would be satisfied. At this particular church event, Greg Lowry was speaking, and his sermon was about a man called Naaman from 2 Kings 5. Naaman was a revered general of the Syrian army. He commanded many soldiers, and they looked up to him because of how great, honorable, and mighty he was, in verse 1. His only downfall was that he was afflicted with leprosy. In those days, there was no cure for this disease, 
and Naaman was like a dead man walking. It was only a matter of time before he would die. Chad Williams began to see some similarities in Naaman. Everyone saw him as a Navy SEAL on the outside, but his inside, he was hurting, and he was more miserable than ever. At the same time, Naaman was a particular man on the outside in front of his men, but below the surface, there was something else entirely going on. Can you relate to Chad or Naaman? Who are you at your core being? Are you one person in front of your family, friends, and co-workers? But then, when you're all alone and no one sees you, are you someone else completely different? Naaman had leprosy. He had a disease that was sin. That's really the root of the problem. When you're a different person, when you're a different person when you're around others than when you're alone, the ultimate cause of it is sin. Are you trying to find fulfillment and purpose in the goals and dreams you attain? They'll just leave you more hungry and dry than ever before. They will never completely gratify you and never deliver. It's like decaf coffee. You think you'll get that extra juice, that extra spark, but after you drink it, you realize that it's just a replica, a fake. In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Galilee, but they had to go through a Samaritan town called Sychar. This was actually the very place where Jacob, or Israel, gave some land to his son Joseph. It was called Jacob's Well. All the disciples went into town to find something to eat, while Jesus, tired from his long walk, rested by the well. At the same time, a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Here's a little backstory on the Samaritans. They were viewed as outcasts by the Jews because they had intermarried with local pagans and had diluted their pure Hebrew blood. Just imagine the modern wars between the Protestant and Catholic Irish, or the Serbs and Muslims in Bosnia. This was the Jews and Samaritans in those days. The Samaritans were descended from Ephraim and Manasseh, two sons of Joseph, and some were from the tribe of Levi. The Jewish hatred of the Samaritans probably began before the separation of Israel's northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judea, as described in 1 Kings. Eventually, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Babylonians, while Judah was captured by the Assyrians. When the Jews of the northern kingdom returned from exile to their homeland under King Cyrus, they despised the Samaritans who were allowed to remain in Judah while under captivity and had committed the ultimate sin, having offspring with non-Jewish heathens. This disdain and loathing of the Samaritans continued throughout the centuries and still existed during Jesus' time. Jesus looked over at the Samaritan woman and asked her to give him a drink of water. The woman thought it was odd that Jesus, a Hebrew Jew, would ask her to give him a drink of water because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman was confused and wondered where Jesus would get this living water. John fourteen thirteen through 15 continues. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus then asked the woman to call to her husband. 
When the Samaritan replied that she had no husband, Jesus told her that she had had five husbands and was living with a man she wasn't married to. The woman was astonished and perceived that Jesus was a prophet. He went on to explain that God the Father was to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The woman explained that she knew that Christ the Messiah was coming and would make all things clear. It was at this time that Jesus revealed to her, a Samaritan woman, the least likely person that he was Christ the Messiah. Before this time, Jesus had never revealed this truth to anybody. However, here he was telling this news to a divorced, lowly Samaritan woman. She became the first evangelist to tell everyone that Jesus was the Messiah. How is it that after you finally reach all your dreams and aspirations, you are still left parchy and dry? Is it because you've been drinking from the earthly waters? However, Jesus offers a living water that after you partake it, you will never thirst again. Here's how it works. When you have a relationship with your creator, one which you were always supposed to have through his son, Jesus Christ, the search is over and you are finally fulfilled and will lack nothing. All these other things in this world that leave you hungry and thirsty for more and more will never appease that craving, can eventually be relished and enjoyed like never before in their appropriate way as secondary pleasures next to God. Colossians 3 verse 17 says, And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is how you utilize your temporary goals and aims, things with earthly value, and instill them into godly, eternal context and place true relevance in your goals. Prayer is asking God to align you with his will, rather than asking him to be aligned with yours. I will end with this story. There was an 11-year-old boy whose father was murdered in front of him by a brutal thug. The boy tried his best to fight off this villain, but he lacked the necessary skills. His father's murder left him alive, but gave him two distinct scars on his cheeks so he could remember the incident. The boy loved his father and was grieved by the loss. Throughout the next 20 years, the boy dedicated his life to the craft of assassination and revenge. He became an expert in the art of swordsmanship and hoped that one day he would meet his father's murderer and would not fail again. In that moment, he would say to his father's murderer, Hello. My name is Inigo Mantoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Finally, that day arrived. He and Count Rugen, his father's murderer, confronted each other in a battle to the death, and Inigo came out as the victor. Here he was at the top of the world. He had finally arrived at the pivotal moment he had dreamed of for most of his life. All those years of intricate, dedicated practice. He had put off many things in his life to instead become the man that he was. He should have felt elated and overjoyed that he had reached that mountaintop and avenged his father's murder. However, he felt empty and void. Just as he was about to escape the castle where Count Rugen lay dead, Inigo turned to Wesley, his newly found friend. It is very strange that I have been in this revenge business for so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Wesley, the ever-so-confident man that he was, had just gone into retirement from piracy, placed his hand on Inigo's shoulder and said, Have you ever considered piracy? You'd make a wonderful Dread Pirate Roberts. 